this is Nick with Sonic Perspectives, and welcome to episode number two of our Talking Perspectives series recorded on April 12th, 2018. In today's episode, we'll be discussing Catharsis, the most recent release from Machine Head, crowdfunding platforms such as Kickstarter, Indiegogo, and Patreon, and the newest release from heavy metal legends Judas Priest, and that album is Firepower. On this episode, I again have with me Joel Berrios. Hey there, it's great to be back. Austin Kokel. Greetings and salutations. And Gonzalo Pozo. Thank you guys so much for letting me do this again. We are happy to have you back. Thank all you guys. So let's talk about topic number one. It's a an album that uh, at least two of you are a lot more familiar with. It's the new Machine Head album, Catharsis. It was released January 26th uh, via Nuclear Blast. Uh, now, one of the reasons that you guys wanted to talk about this album is in reaction to how the fan base of the band uh, reacted to that album. Now, uh, Gonzalo, since you're kind of the metal expert here, why don't you give us a little bit of background on that and, and kind of frame that up for us? Well, the background behind Machine Head is that they established themselves as one of the uh, forefront bands of the group metal movement, uh, starting in the mid-90s. And by the time the early 2000s rolled around, they were pretty much dabbling in new metal as well. Uh, this is exactly why I never got into them back day um however at some point between then and now they started uh experimenting with more melodic song structures and a lot more shredding and that really came to the forefront like i first noticed it with the blackening which came out like in 2006 2007 and to this day that is probably the machine head album that sticks uh that sticks out the most for me and uh and they've continued in that uh you know, in that path, uh, and with catharsis, I don't know. It's uh, it kind of sounds to me like a throwback to the old style, and and I think that might have uh, some bearing on why they chose to call it what they did. Um, anybody else want to chime in on this right now? Well, Joel, I know you had some thoughts on this because you thought some of the backlash against the album was undeserved. So wh why don't you give us your take? Sure, why not? Catharsis is my head album number nine, probably their most polemic one to date, and arguably one of the most divisive albums of the year. And I believe one of the reasons why is that for many fans, Catharsis is not the album they were expecting it to be. Let's set the record straight. I am not a Machine Head fan. I discovered them, as many did with Burn My Eyes, and that's the only Machine Head album in my collection, in a sparkling orange vinyl edition, in case Nick is wondering. <laughs> in my opinion, everyone has that album that you immediately think of when the band's name is mentioned. And for them, it's none other than their debut effort. Burn My Eyes was released that propelled groove metal to new levels of popularity and aggression, and somehow it managed to divide the metal subculture into two camps. Many jaded trash metal purists blame this record along with all the metal releases such as Sepultura, Chaos Idea, Pantera's Vulgar Display of Power for the demise of trash metal in the early 90s. For me, Bro My Eyes is the perfect example of 90s metal in general, with vicious and memorable songs, blistering riffs, and angry lyrics on top. Nonetheless, that happened back in 1994, and many, many moons have passed since then. The band went through a, some sort of a new metal phase with The Born in Red and Supercharger. Both albums most of their loyal fan base despise, and later they were some sort of unanimously praised and once again cemented the revolutionary modern metal status with a couple of records like The Blackening and Unto the Locos, unanimously, as I said, considered a musical redemption by their followers. And then Catharsis knocks off outdoor with its controversial mixture of rap metal moments in tracks like Triple Being and Psychotic, and some other trash teen groovecore riffings in tracks like Heavy Lies the Crown and Behind a Mask. And the overall reception and the backlash has been truly fervent and merciless. What is my main issue with this record? That is excessively long, clogging on 74 minutes 
it probably includes five tracks that really don't do much to help people to understand why Rob Flynn and company decide to deviate from their bulldozer-like attitude at this time in their careers. All right. Well, let me just say, first off, why do you need Wikipedia when, when we just have Joel? <laughs> I mean, that was one hell of a history of the band. Now, coming in as someone who, you know, wasn't overly familiar with Machine Head at all, I did listen to some old stuff. I did listen to the new record. And I, I could see there was a, a change there. But a lot of the elements still remained, and, and I, I, I can see why people were upset. But at the same time, it, it was definitely Machine Head from, from what I could tell. Now, Austin, I believe you're also pretty new to it. What did you think of the new record? Actually, I'm 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 not that new to it. I have sort of a weird history with uh, with Machine Head. I fir- I've known about them since the '90s, probably mid '90s. And in 1999, when Megadeth's Risk came out, also another controversial album. Um, some might even say the the album that kind of killed Megadeth for a long time. Um, there was a sampler disc with that, and I discovered a lot of good stuff on there. Uh, one of my favorite bands of all time, Double Drive, was on there. Um, there was a new type of song on there that I loved, Creepy Greenlight. And then we had um, off of the album The Burning Red, like Joel was saying, sort of one of their new metal albums was the song From This Day. And again, I had known who Machine Head was for about – three or four years before that. And I enjoyed the hell out of From This Day. I mean, I knew, you know, even in 99, I, I knew what new Metal was, was not a fan of it. Uh, my friends dragged me to um, the Family Values Tour, and I literally went to the opposite side of the arena when Limp Biscuit was on and just sat on the floor until it was done. So I, by 99, I fully knew what new Metal was and was not a fan. But From This Day, to me, had... I don't know. It had the snarl. It had the danger. It was a bit more fun and just, you know, it was, it was the product of past just throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know? So I really enjoyed that song. That said, I never got into them at that time. I never bought that CD. I always just remembered that song and loved it. And fast forward about eight years. And I remember hearing an interview with um, Scott Ian of Anthrax, or maybe this was, uh, on his blog or something it was before Twitter. I know that. And he said the blackening was like the best metal album of 2007. Well, let's, let's check that out. So I bought Christmas and he's, he's right. I mean, it's, I don't want to say it's like prog metal, but it's like epic metal. It's, 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 it might be in my top 10, top 20 albums of all time, the blackening. And, you know, even Rob Flynn of machine head says it's kind of their version of the wall and and i would i could totally see that and i think they tried to repeat that formula a little bit with uh unto the locust after that and then again with uh the next album after that um was it bloodstones and diamonds or whatever the one with killers and kings and i think it worked really really well for the blackening they had the songwriting to support that epic 75 minute kind of approach and by the time the last album of that that genre came out, or that style, it was still good, but it was getting a bit watered down over time. And I think they had to do something different, which I think is where catharsis comes in. It's not completely back to their new metal, you know, from this day sort of roots. Um, it, you can tell it's still the band that made the blackening. They have a lot of those same chops and sort of, you know, tricks in the bag. But that said... You know, Rob Flynn, love him to death. I mean, the general is he's a he's a cool guy and he speaks from his his heart and his mind, doesn't care at all what people think or say. Um, he just did what he wanted on this album. But I've one of the biggest criticisms I've heard is that by the time these guys are fifty, and you could also say this about some other bands like Sons of Apollo and everything, by the time these guys are in their fifties, how do they keep up, you know, these sort of aggressive lyrics and themes? when they're just guys living in relatively big houses with their feet up with kids and everything, you know, kind of like Slayer. It's, it's hard to maintain that, you know, sort of aggression at this point in the game. And I feel like that's, that's probably the biggest problem with catharsis that um, sometimes some of the, the lyric choices and some of the rapping, it just seems a bit forced for me. That said, I like the album. 
And I do agree with Joel that 75 minutes is a bit long, especially when each song is, you know, three to five minutes with the exception of like one clocking in eight or nine. It does take a long time to get through it. But um, I, I respect the fact that they tried to do something different this time around because I think they needed to because if they just repeated an attempt at the blackening or under the locust, it would have been too much of a, of a good thing. And that could have been bad in another way. So there's my take on it. Okay. Um, yeah, and I would say, too, uh, I would agree with both of you in that I think the runtime is a little long. It seemed like it took me a good long time to to get through it the, the few times I, I listened to it, and it seemed like it did go on quite a bit. Uh, now, one thing, uh, when we're talking about the backlash here, before I got the full album, I checked out the song Bastards on YouTube. And one thing I saw was that a lot of people seemed upset about the political message, not necessarily the change in music. Uh, now, this could be before, you know, the rest of the album was heard. Um, but do you think that some of the backlash was about the lyrics more than the musical change? Um, you, you can answer that and then uh, go on to what else you have, Joel? Absolutely. There's also an underlying politically infused vibe that spans throughout the whole album, mostly evident in songs like Razor Blade, Smile, and sometimes I feel like the music was put in a second place in favor of the lyrics. Nonetheless, if you get rid of the fillers and shrink the album down to 50 minutes, Catharsis turns into a very solid matching head record. For me, prior to listening to the album, when I started reading some of the online reviews, I didn't think that it was possible that a proven heavyweight like Machine Head could release such a stinker at this point. All the online rants made me a little bit skeptical, you know? And I've got to say that despite all the shortcomings and the somewhat disjointed nature of the album flow, I applaud them for taking the risk of going into an experimental phase even if the results are fairly more controversial than probably their own initial assessment. It's been a bold move and certainly a departure from the sound of their most recent offerings. But it's far from being the crap songs are saying that it is. And far from being the worst album they have ever made. Yeah, maybe some we have to program on a specific playlist and get rid of the songs that they don't like, but there's still plenty of inflammatory and militant attitude to enjoy if listened with an open and receptive state of mind. All right, that was a great, Joel. Gonzalo, what are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, it's kind of interesting to hear Joel in his uh, epic, epic uh, way of speaking uh, mention that he considers this to be an experimental album. Um, now, it's obviously a change of direction for them, considering the path that they've been on ever since The Blackening came out. But, like, for me, the classic Machine Head sound had been the groove metal, burn my eyes sound. Uh, and I consider The Blackening to be a more experimental sound. Um, like, personally, I'm not that crazy about Catharsis, although I completely understand why they would want to... Uh, to uh, return to a style that they were that they were known for when they were first establishing themselves as a, you know, as a band. Uh, but there is a big part of me that would just that would love to uh, to see what other tricks these guys have up their sleeves because it's clear that these are incredibly talented musicians. Are they capable of doing anything other than uh, the groove metal of their past and the epic thrash of their more recent past? Uh, and I don't know, maybe with the next record, they'd be able to address that. Yeah, we certainly uh, will see when that comes. It'll probably be a few years, but it'll be interesting to see after this progression what you know that next album does bring. Austin, you had a comment? Yeah, the one thing I'm thinking about this album, too, is um, you know after the past three, where you had song lengths, you know, averaging six to ten minutes pretty much all over you know all over every album, I'm just thinking maybe the band just didn't want to play these huge epic, you know, Halo and Now I Lay Thee Down and all this kind of stuff night after night after night, especially when they were doing an evening with Machine Head for a lot of those shows. Maybe they just wanted to play music that they liked to play and created an album to kind of give them some just some fun shows to look forward to, you know, that they could just instead of you know, just shredding and, you know, these huge, intricate, long things that take tons of, maybe they just wanted to kind of get back to basics as well. And 
after what nine albums i believe joel said yes you know it's like you know good good for them because i mean like i said about rob flynn he kind of just does what he wants which i respect about him and you know that and i think this album is a, a testament to that that they just they wanted to do something different and like like gonzo said you know it's um I'm sorry, Gonzalo. I don't. In my brain, I always think he was Gonzo. Um, no, 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 people call me Gonzo. It's cool. All right, cool. Um, you know, so maybe they. You know, I lost my train of thought there. Um, I guess they, um, they, they kind of played it safe by going back to an old style. You know, which now, twenty years later, has become experimental by going back to an old style. But at the same time. It's like we say about all of our favorite bands when they have a change, like Opeth, for example. How many times have people talked about that, where eventually a band is just going to do what they want and fans be damned to a certain extent? And I think Machine Head is quite a proponent of that. If they just want to have shorter songs and just rock out live, then that's what we get for an album or two. And you can come along for the ride and buy it on release day like I did, or you can not listen at all like I bet a bunch of their fans are are doing right now so i don't know all right well austin always the sage says fans suck it uh in his, <laughs> in his so typical, subtle <laughs> in his typical sage fashion why don't we wrap up the machine head discussion there that was a great uh especially for people who are unaware with the band i think that's going to be a great uh, entry point for anybody that's looking to explore them and, and figure out what's going to be suited to their taste. But again, Catharsis is the new one that came out this year. So why don't we move on to topic number two? All right, so moving on, we are now going to talk about crowdfunding, and we have someone with us that uh, is a bit of uh, an expert on the topic. So, Joel, why don't you take it away? Thank you, Nick. Uh, the Internet has changed the music industry in many ways. Nevertheless, while the most would point to digital downloads, piracy, and streaming as the developments with the biggest impact. The effects of crowdfunding should never be overlooked. And before going any further into this conversation, I have invited someone who has an extensive experience in using crowdfunding platforms to finance his past records. Let's welcome musician, songwriter, producer, sound designer, and progressive rock artist Dave Kersner to Talk in Perspective. Dave, are you there? I'm here. Yes. Hello. It's great to have you joining us in this conversation, Dave. Thank you. Likewise. All right, Dave. So for people who might not be aware of you, why don't you just give us a general idea of what you've crowdfunded um, so we just have a, a backline against what you uh, go forward with. Okay. Well, uh, as Joel mentioned, I'm a progressive rock artist. Um, I co-founded a band called Sound of Contact, which uh, released uh, an album called Dimension on on, on a record label, standard uh, progressive rock record label. And when I um, we we split and I did a solo record, I decided to do it independently without a record uh, label uh, deal in place. And I just thought, you know, there's a lot of fans that I had from playing with Kevin Gilbert years ago and also playing with uh, Sound of Contact that uh, would be interested in my solo record. So I did a crowdfunding campaign on Kickstarter for it. It's called New World. And um, I've, I've been in the music industry for many years uh, as a sound designer with my company, Sonic Reality, and working with different people as a keyboardist, sideman, side all kinds of things. So I pulled a lot of favors and brought in friends in the music industry like Steve Hackett and Keith Emerson, some legends uh, that happen to be friends as guests. And that helped uh, just stir up a lot of interest uh, in this crowdfunding campaign that brought in $32,000, which gave me a really deluxe budget to uh, uh, produce, manufacture, uh, and just create from A to Z my first solo record, which was even a, a two-disc version, two hours of music, uh, which is the deluxe edition of New World. Then after that, I did the same thing for my other solo releases. I did a live album uh, and crowdfunded that. Um, and then my second album, studio album, Static, uh, was also through Kickstarter. And it's become kind of a it's, to me, I look at it more like a I've experimented it with in different ways, but I look at it as an elaborate pre-order system where more it's 
for everybody, every type of fan, for the casual fan who just kind of wants a behind the scenes look and just maybe wants the digital download for the standard 10 bucks or the CD for 15, 20 bucks, maybe signed for a little bit more. Uh, it's for them, but it's also for the more, let's say, hardcore fans or uh, who would love to have extra bonus tracks and swag and signed items and a box set of, you know, extra songs and all sorts of things at higher price points. And it accommodates everybody. It's almost like an excuse to do all these extras that fans maybe uh, will find it collectible, especially if they think, uh, you know, you're going to be famous someday. And they, they could say way back when <laughs> I got the, I got the one of 50 of blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, it's really a cool way to, and, and it's very interactive as is social media uh, to just go direct with your fans. And it, it seems to work. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you're talking about some of those higher end rewards. And I think most of us here have participated in those in, in one way or another. And I'll, I'll get to mine in a little bit. But Austin, I, I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly from the, the cruise we did together, I think one of your rewards had to do with Dave. Is that correct? That is true. Um, I'm, tr I'm, I'm trying to think where you're going with this, but um I do know we had sort of an interesting uh, encounter, or lack thereof, I should say, where um, there was a show that was meant to happen, and Nick, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, and um, I got into Miami um, a night early to attend this show of Dave Kersner and band, and uh, the weather gods did not agree with us. And uh, long story short, I took the Uber, um, I don't want to say the Uber ride from hell, but it was it was almost like to hell and back. <laughs> it was the storms I've ever seen in my life. And it took us about 45 minutes to make a 20-minute drive to get to the venue just to be turned around at the uh, the gate by the parking attendant. And I'm sure Dave remembers this well, that yeah. the show just did not happen. And uh, I saw Dave on Cruise to the Edge that year, and it was like – our hearts just went out to each other from from musician to fan and back. It was just like that would have been great, and it's a shame it didn't happen. But that said, that same show did happen the next year, and uh, there's some pretty epic uh, video of Dave's uh, guitarist gunslinger Fernando Perdomo just shredding like a madman on that show. So um, it just goes to show you, you never know. You know, when you go for the concert tickets for an outdoor show as a perk included with a uh, with a live album release, yeah. sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. But we, uh, I've got. I'm, I'm sorry, sorry to you there. Uh, I was going to yeah. say I've got the Blu-ray to 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 enjoy it though. So. Yeah, it's 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 you make a great point, and for anyone wanting to do a crowdfunding campaign, I actually did two campaigns for live albums. Uh, uh, the first one was New World, and then the second one was Static uh, Live. And I did them differently exactly because of that experience. Um, for New World Live campaign, which, my sec which was my second campaign, uh, I did include actually two shows. I did have a backup show. I guess you didn't make it to the Miami, uh, the, the soundstage show, which was a private. Yeah, that was, yeah, even earlier than I got into town. Yeah, that was one day earlier, and that was indoors. It actually cost me a fortune, and I don't recommend anyone sort of renting lights <laughs> and stage and everything else because the actual Blu-ray that we did was recorded a little later at a venue that we happen to be playing at, and they have their own lights and their own everything else stage, and, and that was the bet turned out to be the better way to do it. So just something to think about um, in terms of you know renting all the equipment and just putting it in a room versus just actually going to a venue and doing a real show i think that's the better way and the second thing is and this is the biggest thing can't count your chickens before they're hatched um you know we had everything set up to record that uh, we we're playing at a whole festival with tons of people would have been fantastic uh but it was outdoors and it was really hardcore rain, actually. It was so much so that we were all turned around. If, if you feel bad, we had loaded up all our equipment and we were on our way down. And then they said, nope, it's not happening. And so um, so now for Static Live, what I did actually is we played at the Prague Stock Festival, which I'm also playing at uh, coming up uh, in October with, uh, with my new band, In Continuum. But with the Dave Kersner band, we played Prague Stock 
uh, all of my album Static and recorded it on video and audio. And after I physically had it in my hands is when I started the campaign because I knew, okay. Uh, and it was about the Blu-ray at that point, not about going to a show. Because you're right, it is kind of hard to uh, promise something, especially where people have to travel. Because we did redo that show, but not everybody could travel. And, and you could go in for free if you had paid for it the first time. But you, there was no way to actually, you know, if you had to travel for it, it was, wasn't very convenient. So, um, yeah, I think the best thing to do for people, honestly, is uh, products and extra swag and signed items and collectible things. Um, maybe, and you get a behind-the-scenes backstage, virtual backstage pass with it as well. That's the real added value that's priceless to people who want to see the process of making an album or whatever happens behind the scenes and and being part of it maybe getting credited in the in the liner notes or on the pdfs and and just feeling like you know also that you're supporting the artist because it you know going back to what you were saying before with streaming and piracy and all kinds of stuff i mean even cd piracy in fact i have physically in my hand for the first time a bootleg of my first album of, of new world that i asked someone to send me they bought it and they literally just Somebody else ripped me off completely, redid the CD, and it looks great. I mean, they did a fantastic job with wow. it. Wow. And, I, you know, it's like, God, even me? You're going to rip off me? You know? <laughs> <clears throat> but, yep. So, but the cool, and that's horrible. And, and, you know, the guy who bought it felt terrible. He didn't even really know that it was that. So, but you know when you buy direct from the artist that you are supporting the artist. And some people care, and, and God bless those people, because that's what you know, we, no one can make these albums on fumes, you know, for nothing, especially if you want high caliber productions with all sorts of musicians from all over the world participating. So I think crowdfunding is also a way for people and, you know, just to, and people buying from their own, the artist websites and band camp and things like that are a way to keep music alive and, and live and kicking as a business. Yeah, and, and let me say, too, I had forgotten that that show got canceled when I brought that up. But as far as the bootleg's concerned, you have to think that you kind of made it as an artist. Someone thinks they can copy it and make money off it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, kind of the reason I went into that is because it was, you know, I know it didn't work out in that case. But it's a cool thing that you could only kind of really do with that, you know, pre-investment and getting fans together at that, that special event. And one of the coolest things I ever had was uh, I supported the band Mind Maze here locally. And I was one. Oh, uh, yeah. Great band. And, 10 backers uh, that got to go into the studio and do some uh, backing shouts uh, for the album and it's all of the album. It's really cool. Um, so you can do some things that just really would not be practical otherwise. Now, Joel, I know you had some comments as well. Yeah, I just wanted to bring up a story. It's not just artists that are using crowdfunding to take control of their careers. In some cases, fans are starting crowdfunding campaigns themselves, hoping to persuade their favorite artists to take action. A clear example I read about is what happened in 2004 when Foo Fighters fans in Richmond, Virginia started a page on CrowdTill selling tickets to a show that the band didn't know about. Really? And you know what they did? It was the first Foo Fighters show in Richmond, Virginia <laughs> for 16 years. That's awesome. Tell me a lot. Wow, that is amazing. Now, I, I don't recommend that anybody do that. Let me put out that disclaimer. Talking Perspectives does not <laughs> condone selling tickets to a show you have not booked. However, that is a really you know, cool thing. It's funny you mention that because, um, you know, right now with uh, Sound of Contact, uh, several band members left and, and, and I'm one of the remaining two people. And it's just sort of, sitting there as a page promoting everybody's individual solo albums and projects. And, uh, but, you know, Matt and I uh, post some nostalgic things to, you know, what's going on with everybody now and what's, what you know, the past, just to keep, you know, keep it alive because the album Dimension I will be around forever. And uh, so I've heard several people say, because the you know there's been splits in the band and and there hasn't been you know nearly the output of albums that there could have been and you know some people think of it as oh this could have been the next Genesis or as popular as Genesis and this and that and I just responded saying you know that's a, it's a, I mean it's a huge compliment it's not so many 
people could really, you know, it's a different time, let alone, you know, nobody can really touch what they did. It's very unique. But if, let's say, for example, all a large percentage of Genesis fans would actually like that album. I mean, it is Phil Collins' son, for example, and the music has some relation to it, you know, stylistically. Uh, but you know, they have millions of fans. They've sold millions of records. So if, if the people that really think that were to actually tell every other Genesis fan about it, and if, if a large portion of those millions of Genesis fans would actually be interested and buy it, then, you know, the people that want the original lineup to get back together, it's like, well, if, if, if we're selling millions you know, then you have a whole different sort of business to talk about and maybe, you know, uh, funds basically available to do to, to overcome, let's say, obstacles such as the difficulties working in different parts of the world, which is one of the challenges that we had. Uh, it was so expensive to get together. It was ridiculous, you know, going to England and staying there and, you know, and then or Canada and everywhere. So, you know, it's a chicken or the egg, but I love the idea of the power that both the internet and crowdfunding and social media actually has. If people really, really want it, there are, I mean, like you said, you can't endorse the idea of creating your own crowdfunding campaign at, at you know, for something like that, like a show. But theoretically, if you were to like, you know, people do petitions, people do, uh, you know, they share things around word of mouth. You know, if there was just some huge boost in sales or something because everyone just had to have this and they really, truly believed that a band like Sound of Contact could fill those shoes, then maybe it would. You know, I don't know. But it it just depends on how these tools like crowdfunding and, and Internet uh, and social media and YouTube, just how it goes. You know, I, I was I'm actually friends with a, a guy. His, name's, uh, his stage name is Gautier. His real name is Wally. And you may know him. He has uh, his song. Uh, what is it? Uh, somebody. Uh, somebody that I used to know. Somebody that I used to know yeah. has almost, I think, a billion views or something like that. Something crazy. Like it had 900 million views. It just went absolutely viral crazy. And any of those kind of things can happen. But it, it does depend on the people and how much they care to share it around. Or if it's just like casual and they don't even think about that. They don't even think about how everyone now, because of the internet, has the power to influence others to support music. And of course, with crowdfunding, you do it directly. And it's I've I've been amazed, honestly. Some people spend hundreds of dollars. In fact, just to say, and I'm going on a little soliloquy here, a little, uh, but it's it's hopefully inf interesting information. But and I'm happy to share it because it's public anyway. You can look on my my crowdfunding uh, pages on Kickstarter. Just look up Dave Kersner. But the average sale of my album, when you talk about all the different sort of price rewards, is typically between sixty and eighty dollars. That's the average sale. I mean, some people spend two hundred dollars or more, and some people spend just ten dollars. But you know, when typically people think that either it's just ten bucks. On iTunes, that's what an album is worth these days without the liner notes and everything else. Or even worse than that, it's just something you stream for free. And here in this world, granted, it's, it's you know, we're talking about four to six hundred people, let's say, for my kind of campaign. Maybe others have larger, but uh, but still for a smaller group of people that really care and want to support the artist, we're talking about. $70 on average for the sale of that album with the extras. And that's a huge statement. Now, if that, those numbers could grow because more people care, more people know about crowdfunding or whatever it takes, then the music industry could significantly make a comeback, but just in a whole different, like a paradigm shift. Yeah. And one thing I definitely want to add to that, because we kind of hit on it last week when we we're talking about vinyl and, and different versions of the vinyl and that there definitely is not the quantity necessarily of, of music fans and buyers, especially for niche genres that there were. So tapping into the quality or the amount that each person is willing to spend goes a huge way towards getting artists to the budgets they need. Now, Austin, I know you had something you wanted to add. 
Yeah, sort of on the coattails of what Dave was talking about there with um, just how many people are out there on the internet. I feel like sort of the flip side of that coin is also how many bands there are doing this now. You know, I mean, Marillion, for example, or is sort of credited as being the first to really make this a feasible business model going mm-hmm. back, what, 15, 16 years now. Yeah. And as we've gone, it was sort of a slow acceleration, but over the past, years it's caught on like wildfire to the point where as a music enthusiast myself i feel like sometimes i can't keep up with all of the different campaigns going on financially not not even just you know seeing them come at me in my news feed but like just my wallet you know reaches critical mass with how many different vinyl and colored vinyl and you know like dave was saying 60 to 80 dollars a pop granted you can just get the digital download for 10 dollars or the one dollar tip jar sort of thing but i think the bigger issue even more than that is um just as as an artist and maybe dave you can speak to this is how you kind of cut through the noise and get yourself noticed when there are, you know, every single prog band or every single, you know, indie band or whatever, everybody's doing this now. And it's, it's gotta be difficult. Yeah. I mean, I don't think about that. I, I just, uh, as an artist myself, I just put out, I just tell my story. I just say, this is what I want to do. This, you know, these are, this is who's involved. This is what you get. And, you know, I try to tweak it so it, it's realistic and more appealing, you know, so I, I, I get feedback. You know, I'm very interactive, as you know, uh, on, and, and accessible because I, I don't try to play this sort of, you know, illusion game of I'm some sort of, you know, untouchable uh, public figure that you're lucky to, you know, I don't, I'm just a real person who likes to, likes to know what people like, what they don't like, and, you know, just stay true to myself. So I, I, you know, that's what I do. I just present my, my products and try to just make them appealing and, 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 uh, you know, entice people to get it. Um, you know, I don't really think about things competitively, uh, for better or worse, but uh, I do recognize that. And, um, you know, I mean, it's up to everybody. Like you said, it's scalable. If you if you, there's ten products, you know, you want to buy, then you can only spend fifty bucks each or whatever. Then you do that. If there's less, then maybe you can spend more on the box set from so and so. And you know, everyone's doing uh, all sorts of cool things. There was that Bill Bruford box set and King Crimson things and all, all sorts of stuff. And you know, I mean, for me, look, I mean, people spend. A lot of money on a lot of things. Everyone's got a different budget for things, but you know, some people spend a hundred bucks for dinner, uh, for one night. Uh, some people spend uh, money on, you know, I don't know, all sorts of things for their house or, or, or cars, you know, which costs a lot of money. Uh, for me, at least most of my life, I used to just want to spend money on music. I would buy vinyl. I would buy, you know, it's just fun. Uh, it's, it's so I think. For the people who really love music, you know, especially I see a lot of people who go on a cruise to the edge and travel to go to festivals and, and follow bands around. I mean, if that's your passion and that's what you want to spend your money on versus something else, then that's great. Not everybody is that. But, you know, like you said, I mean, there's every level down to zero if you want to just wait and, you know, uh, wait till it's streaming or something. You know, you, one way or another, you can you can hear the music. But I think it's just there for people to uh, dip in as much as they can afford to. All right. Now, I know, uh, Joel, you had something you wanted to add to that. Yeah, you're speaking up briefly around what Austin said. I certainly believe crowdfunding is a heck of a way to get a musical project off the ground. But it's certainly not for everyone. Anyone thinking of starting such effort really need to have a personal and interactive relationship with his fans and supporters. I mean, you're asking them to trust you. So if you're not the kind of person who's willing to answer emails personally and shake hands after every show, you probably aren't a good candidate for a crowdfunded project. Good point. It's amazing that it's even possible to fund, create and distribute music without the support of labels that sometimes exploit artists and contracts that can cripple them out. But as long as crowdfunding keeps helping independent artists and small record labels to raise money and keep up their good work, it's certainly and definitely a good thing. 
Yeah, and I had, you know, I would be one of those people that would not be good at crowdfunding anything because I'm terrible at marketing myself. I love doing things. I love doing this series. I think we're going to enjoy it for a long time to come. But for me to actually push it out to people, I'm terrible at that, which is why I have Joel. Um, <laughs> but in any case, let's go to uh, Gonzalo because, well, let's make sure he's still alive. Um, he had something yeah. I wanted to add about Marillion. <laughs> Yeah, like uh, Austin, I think it was, had mentioned that uh, that Marillion are credited as getting the crowdfunding uh, thing off the ground 15 years ago. And I don't mean to be a jerk, but I do have to correct that. Marillion crowdfunded their um, uh, a U.S. tour in 1997 at the behest of their fans. Um, this is according to their biography called Separated Out that came out about eh, 12 years ago or something. But... Um, but it was actually the fans that were on Marillion's message board that actually pitched the idea to the band. And not only did they gather the funds to bring the band to the United States to tour for, uh, what album was that? The Strange Engine. To tour the U.S. for This Strange Engine. Uh, they also paid for tickets on top of that. And, and it was after that that they crowdfunded uh, the uh, Anarachnophobia album and marbles after that but like you know you know to see something that got started with a bunch of lunatic brilliant fans on an internet message board become something where somebody like dave can put out this two and a half hour monster of an album that that includes personnel from yes and 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 genesis and and spock's beard and all these other incredible musicians is is I think a real testament to the dedication uh, of fans of this sort of music. I think there's something kind of wrong with us, but I mean that in a good way. All right. Well, thank you very much. And real quick, uh, we have to say goodbye to Dave. He has to run. So real quick, I want to say thank you very much for Dave to for chipping in with your personal insights. And before you go, give us the 30-second version. You have a new band in Continuum. Go! I have a new band. It's uh, an outlet for the music I was going to do with Sound Contact. I have with me uh, my Sound Contact bandmate, Matt Dorsey, two former guitarists who toured with us, uh, Randy McStein and John Wesley, uh, who also played with Porcupine Tree. Uh, on drums, it's Marco Miniman, who played with Stephen Wilson and Nick Cilio, yes. uh, two of my favorite drummers in the world. Uh, and Nick, Nick played with me on on with kevin gilbert as well as on my album new world uh we're going to be playing prog stock and cruise to the edge uh prog stock this year and cruise to the edge and many of that lineup will be joining us for those gigs which is cool and we've got special guests from marillion and yes and other bands as well so something to look forward to we're going to be releasing the first album in october all right perfect look forward to seeing you at prog stock thank you for joining us have a good night dave thank you guys take care All the best. All right. So we've been on crowdfunding for a good long time here. We're going to wrap it up. But here's what we're going to do. We had a lot of topics that we did not get to hit despite the length of this conversation. So probably in two weeks, we are going to come back to this topic, get get more in-depth on some of the pros and cons. But to finish it up, Austin has something he wants to talk about as far as a a warning about uh, some some of the things. Yeah, sort of a a caveat emptor here, a buyer beware, is – you know, you always see when you go to a crowdfunding campaign what the risks are in that campaign. And usually, you know, they'll be kind of flippant about how they answer. Oh, there are no risks. You know, we've already recorded 75% of the album. We just need to fly in a couple of guests, whatever. You know, they kind of address some of the things. They're like, don't worry, it'll happen. Well, sometimes it actually doesn't happen. And one of these is, has become sort of a, a really well-known uh, cautionary tale is uh, the band Corellia, who is basically non-existent now. And I myself was a fan of them going back as far as 2011, 2012, when their debut EP came out. And many people thought they were going to be like the next kind of pain of salvation. I don't, I don't know what, but they were young and pretty amazing. And in 2015, they did an Indiegogo campaign called Corellia 2015, the long-awaited debut album where they promised a 90-minute double-disc debut album, which is pretty um, pretty ambitious for a debut from a young band. And they met 
223% of their $15,000 goal. They made $33,000, I'm sorry, $33,455 raised by 825 backers. So that's pretty impressive for a band that just put out one EP before that. Um, They put out updates maybe the next year or so. A couple of guys left the band. They showed some videos in the studio. They said, hey, guys, you know, it's us. This has become harder than we thought it would be, but we promise we're still here. We're still working on it, you know, that sort of thing that you see from a lot of people a lot of the time. Well, their last update was over a year and a half ago. It was like mid to late 2016, barely a year after the uh, the campaign had finished. Uh, and they never even owned up to the failure of this. They've they've never released the album. They haven't said anything in almost two years now. People are just like, at first people were upset. They wanted to know where their album was. They wanted to know where their money was. And of course, with these crowdfunding campaigns, once you give that money, that, that belongs to the band. There's no guarantee that you'll get it back ever. And what kills me, because I donated it, donated to it myself, is you know I just got like a double disc CD signed copy or something like that. I just I, I I know that the album will never happen and it is what it is. But I wish the band would say we made a mistake, we're sorry or something like that. At least own up to it. But the fact that they've disappeared off the face of the earth just it just it just you feel cheated as a fan. And it could happen with any band at any time. And these guys had some elaborate rewards for for the $600 level they were giving away a cloak with the band's logo on the back where if you went to see them live you had like all access to the band backstage whatever while you wore that cloak well some poor schmoes paid $600 more than one person i think and they have nothing to show for it and i mean that you know not trying to to muck rake here, but that just kind of sucks no matter which way you you dice it. So uh, you know, cautionary tale, like I said, just you never know when one can go terribly wrong. So you know, thankfully that's the only one out of probably the fifteen or twenty that I've been involved in, in at this point that has gone so terribly awry. But um, you know, it could happen at any point. Thankfully, I'm out thirty, forty bucks or whatever my pledge was. But um, you know, it could really sting for some people. Well, as Dave Kersner told us earlier, some people, you know, go for one hundred dollar dinners and that's that's Corellia every <laughs> night, thanks to people like Austin. Yeah, right. So that that wraps up this episode's uh talk on crowdfunding. But like I say, it's something that we, we haven't hit all of what we wanted to and we, we will uh circle back to this topic at, at some point for sure. Uh so let's now move on to our last topic. This is a somewhat more recent release, just came out March nineteenth. Uh, via Epic, uh, the Epic label, and it's a an album that I didn't plan on getting. Uh, I'm not a huge Judas Priest fan. Um, I, last album I have is 2008's Nostradamus, uh, but there was a really good reaction to this album, so I picked it up, and I'm really glad I did. Um, so the new one, uh, like I say, is Firepower. Uh, since we heard so little from Gonzalo in the uh, <laughs> last segment, why don't you give us your initial thoughts on the album? Eh, it's alright. <laughs> Honestly, like for all the hype that I've heard about about how great it was, to me, it just sounds like Judas Priest running their wheels. Um, and it doesn't really make me sad to say that because they're a band that, as as much as they've contributed to the genre over the past what almost fifty years, uh, the quality of their of their material has had its peaks and valleys and this one it's it's judas priest for sure but it doesn't grab me it's not it's not painkiller you know it is not sad wings of destiny uh but i don't think it's supposed to be anyway i think that at this stage in their career the fact that they're putting out solid material at all is something that we should not take for granted 
And I'm coming at it from a very similar perspective as not a big fan and knowing, you know, how long Drew's Priest has been at it now uh, to hear, you know, an album this solid. You know, I don't see it as repetitive. I'm not a huge Judas Priest fan. It doesn't hit me in that way. So I was really taken by it. I really enjoyed it. Um, And and Austin, I know you as well uh, were new to this album. What did you think? Did you have a similar impression? I have sort of a weird history with Judas Priest. I feel like I, that's the way with every band. Um, I really, I mean, I obviously I've known about them forever. Um, but when I was a kid, you know, it was my older brother who got me into most bands. He got me into Iron Maiden. You know, he got me into Megadeth. You know, that's that that was sort of my rite of passage. I mean, I, here's and here's why it's weird. I got into them with tim ripper owens on the mic that's the point where i started to become a little bit more into judas priest and of course i had known the hits you know i knew you know got another thing coming painkiller or whatever you know all hellbent for leather i knew all that growing up but it just it never really did it for me that that said the first albums i listened to were jugulator with tim ripper owens and sad wings of destiny from like 1976 i want to say so very weird mix of judas priest to get me into it and since Rob Halford came back, I haven't really kept up with him very much, to be honest. And uh, especially after, you know, KK Downing retiring and, and things like that, they've just sort of not been on my radar very much. I know they've been releasing albums, um, but I just haven't kept up very much. That said, Jugulator, I still love. Bullet Train is one of the greatest uh, uh, Judas Priest songs of all time. And when Ripper left to go to Iced Earth, you know, I've been an Iced Earth fan since 94. Um, you know, he was – Matt Barlow was a very tough act to follow, and he did it well there too. So I have a lot of respect for uh, Ripper Owens. But um, this was the first full Judas Priest album I've listened to since Rob Halford came back. And I'm sure we're going to get all sorts of nasty comments there. Why is this guy on the – you know, why isn't his brother on the call? But <laughs> This guy is a millennium guy. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it's – it, it, I, I will admit I enjoyed it. Um, so it's it's kind of weird hearing Rob Halford in 2018 when um, you know I, what I'm used to hearing for the past 20 years now is Ripper Owens. But I'll admit I was pleasantly surprised by the album. Uh, I think Halford sounds amazing. I think the fact that uh, their bass player Ian Hill, correct me if I'm wrong there. He's been in, he's been in the band since like the '60s technically, and he's still their bass player. I think seeing how the band has evolved over the past 40 years is very cool because this album that I listened to, Firepower, leading up to this this uh, chat, to me is very modern, very fresh. I mean, like we could say, it's a bit color by numbers, but again, it's Judas Priest in 2018. They're not gonna they're not gonna reinvent the wheel. But um, I thought some of the songs, you know, Halford sounded amazing on, uh, for example, the title track. And um, I believe it was uh, track eight, I want to say, yeah, Rising from Ruins was very Iced Earth sounding to me, which I enjoyed. And um, I, th- I believe it was Spectre sounded almost like a Bob Rock era Metallica, like sort of that between the Black Album and Garage Inc. sort of era. And I mean that in a really good way. It just sounded like good crushing rhythm guitars. And I don't know, the whole thing, I wasn't sure what to expect in this day and age from them, but I enjoyed it. I was pleasantly surprised. All right, Gonzalo, you wanted to add to that? I love that you mentioned Ripper Owens. And uh, I kind of feel for Ripper Owens because it's I, I can think of two instances where he has been replaced by the singer that he replaced, and that's got to be a tough place to be. Um, but uh, I, I would give a shout out to the Cathedral Spires, also from the Jugulator album. But and I think that that uh, I know that I'm in the minority here, but I think the Jugulator is actually one of the high points of Judas Priest's career. I agree. Um, it's so nice to hear yeah. someone say that. Yeah, yeah, it's you know, it, it's it, it's really wonderful to like actually be in a conversation with somebody that agrees with me on that. But uh, but that said, you're absolutely right, you know. And, and I made this point too that you know the fact that these guys have been at it for so long and are putting out quality material. Yeah, you're right. They're not going to reinvent the wheel, um, but they did it with uh, with Painkiller, uh, and they were they were already veterans by that point. Remember that this band got started in the '60s, um, so might it be too much to expect, you know, for us to 
think that they could do it again? I don't know. I don't know. I think that they might have it in it. But at the same time, with both KK Downing gone and uh, and uh, Glenn Tipton, you know, pretty much out of the band as well. I don't know. I think this band's days are numbered, and that makes me really, really sad. Wow, strong words there. Now, Joel, you haven't chimed in yet. What do you think of the new album? Are you ready for some history? Do we have a choice? I don't believe you do. The teacher is at the chalkboard. Now, before going into history, I love Jugulator. It was an ultra-confident statement they released at the time, and I cannot think of a better man to replace Halford than Tim River Owens. I have the utmost respect for him, and I consider him capable of singing almost anything in metal. Now, circling back with history, I'm a big fan of the old Judas Priest records. Sad Winds of Destiny holds a special place in my record collection. For that moment on, clear that the band left behind the hippie influences that made up their debut and their ability to mix the hard rock music with the doomish, gothic, Sound of Black Sabbath made of that album a unique heavy metal work. Uh, and while Sabbath traded their heaviness for a softer music down the line with technical ecstasies, Judas Priest was bringing out a quite innovative musical concept in which they took heavy metal into new levels of darkness, musical precision, and roughness. Arguably sharing the metal throng in the 80s alongside with Iron Maiden, Judas mm-hmm. is perhaps the number one band out there from the old metal classic acts whose modern albums have been largely criticized. Everything they have released since 1990's Painkiller has been seemingly met with a majority of criticism and skepticism. Now, after almost 50 years, 18 albums and basically shaping the way heavy metal was meant to be played, I would be hard-pressed to find better words to define the point Judas Priest is at this time in their careers than the ones that our friend and contributor Rodrigo Altaf from the Sony Perspective team used when he wrote in the album review. He said something like, I think it's fair to acknowledge that Judas Priest simply doesn't owe us anything anymore. That being said, to my ears, firepower is an unexpected turn of events because it manages to offer up some of the finest work that Judas Priest has put out since the now distant painkiller days. The songs here are your typical Judas Priest style heavy metal with memorable riffs that nicely run out the overall sound. From the opening seconds of Five Power, the starting track, you know exactly what you're in for, yet that's an attraction, not a knock. You know what really pisses me off? I can work for two weeks writing a review, and Joel does a better job <laughs> of a review uh, off on. the cuff <laughs> than I do over those weeks of writing. It's amazing. Um, but let me tell you what I love about this album. Um, one of the highlights for me. Now, the, the first track is Firepower, the title track. And then the lead single was Lightning Strike, the second track, which actually I, I heard on my local radio, oddly enough. Um, but what I love about this album is I listen through it. I'm like, I get the track three. This could be the lead track. I get the track four. This could be the lead single. Track five, track six, it's the same thing. All these songs have something about them that really could could be your first great first impression. I think it's an incredibly solid album, top to bottom. And yes, it might lack the diversity. It, it may lack you know uniqueness compared to the rest of their catalog. It might be Jewish Priest by Numbers, but everything, I, I think, is very solid on the album. I enjoy track after track after uh, track. Um, so uh, actually, Joel, you're up next. Uh, what did you want to say? While to me, Firepower is mostly a throwback to how they did and should have continued sounding in the 80s, there's also the old Bill's nod to the 70s priest with the piano track in Guardians, for example, which is the perfect intro for the crunchy and catchy Rising from Ruiz that Austin was mentioning earlier. And for that matter, some of Scott Travis' drone work is reminiscent of Painkiller, but in general, to me, it sounds more like the 80s Priest. Tracks like Traitor Gate and The Closing Sea of Red offer plenty of power metal flavor and No Surrender makes for the album best bursts of energy. 
Never the Heroes is an also noteworthy example with a mid-tempo pace that has potential for dullness. But however, the epic flair gives it a character and the chorus goes deeper and deeper than any other singles. Yeah, some might say that the band kind of played safe by revisiting some familiar avenues, but I certainly prefer them doing so than attempting to reach the undoable. And I will quote Rodrigo again when he said, Far power is the sound of a band treading familiar territory and paying homage to the past while sounding relevant and forward thinking. Well, I think that's a fantastic way to wrap up. That was our final topic. Uh, so again, I want to thank everyone for listening to episode number two of Talking Perspectives. Once again, I am Nick Andrews, and the folks with me were Joel Berrios, Austin Kokel, uh, and Gonzalo Pozo, and of course, our special guest for the middle segment, Dave Kersner. Uh, please check out his newest thing coming out is In Continuum, and we'll have some links to that, of course, along with some of the other topics we talked about. Please subscribe to the podcast on uh, Google Play, on iTunes, on your podcatchers, whatever, so you get this and interviews and reviews in the future. And of course, all on social media, don't forget to like and follow on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Thank you, everyone. Have a good night, and we'll see you on the next Talking Perspectives.